So hear the word of God, Romans 9, 1-13. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing, witness, bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And there is God's eternal holy word, and may He bring His blessing as we hear it read and preached. Well, after almost a five-month break, we are coming back uh, to the letter of Romans. And in some ways, uh, there's a neat connection, as you'll hear uh, in this message, in this uh, new uh, return to Romans that draws us back to Jonah a little bit and what we heard in the concluding message from that series on Jonah. Chapters 9 to 11 are continuing on with the uh, discussion of the glories of the doctrines of the gospel. Chapters 1 to 11 are all about the gospel that God has provided in Jesus Christ and the doctrines of that gospel and of that righteousness of God that are found only in the Lord Jesus Christ and which are necessary for our salvation. You think of what Peter said in First Peter, uh, sorry, Second Peter, chapter three, at the very end, uh, verse fifteen. He says, "Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ." And and Romans has been helping us, I trust, to grow in the knowledge of that gospel, what it all pertains. But now we are coming to a concluding uh, aspect of those doctrines of the gospel. Uh, that are most challenging. And, and perhaps uh, the, the best has been saved for the last. Um, these chapters, 9, 10, and 11, they are uh, held together by the major theme of the doctrine of God's electing grace. 
and they teach us some of what we might consider the most important truths about God's grace. Excuse me. Some of the most important truths about God's grace. And and yet, they are uh, the most difficult truths that Christians have to accept and to understand and, and how they pertain to our faith and who God is. This section of Romans ends with that doxology that uh, is, I think, one of the greatest doxologies in the New Testament. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him and it should be repaid to Him? For of Him... And through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. You know, what that, what that doxology is basically saying is, who can truly understand the grace of God? <laughs> in all its magnificence, in all of its working, who can understand those final words of our text that we read? Verse 13 of chapter 9. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Who here can fathom why God chooses this one for eternal salvation and this one for eternal damnation? Who can fathom those things? And all we can do is step back and acknowledge He is God, He is great, and His greatness is beyond our understanding. And that doxology that will meet us even after the glories of what Paul has already expressed in the ending of chapter 8. Those were glorious words to our own souls where we can be persuaded that there is nothing that is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and as glorious as those words are to our souls in understanding the grace that has met us and saved us and now keeps us and holds us fast to eternal life. We are left with these chapters of striving to comprehend the greater glory of God's wisdom, justice, and grace that is beyond our comprehension. Who can fathom these things? And and one of the things that you will note as you move from chapter 8 to chapter 9, is that Paul seems to take a very abrupt and emotional turn as he begins to discuss the glory of election and and specifically as he discusses it pertaining to Israel. He is in these chapters, he is going to be dealing with some of the weighty questions about why so few Israelites, so few Jewish people have believed in the Lord Jesus. When they should have been the ones front and center receiving the Lord and and acclaiming Him as their Messiah. And, And what you see Paul saying here in the opening verses is that their unbelief has caused him real anguish and and real sorrow and perhaps a measure of perplexity. 
and he understands what goes through our minds when we consider the the gospel of God. Uh, how uh, it is purposed to save, how it is covenantal to His people and to His elect. And when we understand and see how God has expressed uh, His covenant love to Israel, to the Jewish people, to Abraham's descendants, we're left wondering, has God's Word failed? Can we really trust what God has said He would do if His gospel hasn't done what it was purposed to do among His people. Has God's Word failed? And Paul even asks that question in verse 6. Or answer, sorry, answers that question without asking it. He, he says, it's not that the Word of God has had no effect. And yet people are wondering, how can you trust God's promises? And and even more, when we stop to consider the doctrines of election in verse 14, there's many Christians who think election just makes God seem so unjust. How can you call Him a loving and just God when He chooses some and passes over others? How is that? What's the word we all like in our homes? Fair, yes. How is that fair? You know, and and our children understand the perplexity of that problem. Is God unjust with election? When they in, in their home will see their parents giving something to one of their siblings and they receive nothing and it's not unaccustomed for us to hear them say, that's not fair. Well, we're going to answer, I'm not going to answer those questions tonight. I'm just setting them before you as some of the perplexities. He even asks in verse 19 of this chapter, how can God blame us if we're only saved by electing grace? (laughs) How can He be just in sending anyone to hell if it's impossible for them to come to faith in Christ unless they are the elect? Is not a perplexing question. But I think it's even more than that. That Paul himself is, is helping us to, to walk that line of understanding that God's love is never failing toward His people. If you recall at the very beginning of Romans, Paul said back in verse 16 of chapter 1 that the gospel of God, let me read it for you, that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And what's the very next line? For the Jew first and also for the Greek. And yet, how often, if you read the book of Acts, how often did you see Paul saying, okay, to the Jewish people, I give up on you, I'm going to the Gentiles, because they're ready to listen, they're ready to believe, I'm turning over to them. Because so few of the Jews embrace the truth of Jesus Christ. And even as he expressed at the end of chapter 8, 
that that persuasion, that that confident assurance that there's nothing that's able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can you be so confident of that unfailing love of God when it has been turned away from Israel to the Gentiles? There's a lot of perplexing questions here, isn't there? And Paul is spending these three chapters to deal with the highest doctrines of God's gospel, His electing grace. Because we need to grasp it. And one of the unique things about these next three chapters is that every one of them begins with a very personal and passionate and profound statement by Paul as he expresses his concern over Israel's unbelief and their need of salvation. And and how I want us, as we go through these chapters, how I want us to be looking at these, uh, at these chapters and understanding the doctrine of election is for us to consider it in respect of our own families, in respect of people that we know who are uh, having uh, all that knowledge and perhaps having had the gospel preached to them and having even perhaps uh, some of the blessings that Paul mentions here. What is our attitude toward them? And where, where are we in dealing with them as people yet dead in trespasses and sins and lost to the kingdom of God? And I want us to see, uh, contrary to what many Christians often think about election, is that the doctrines of election pertaining to the gospel, they haven't made Paul emotionally indifferent to people. You, you don't see that when you hear him saying, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed that they would be saved. That's not emotional indifference. Rather, as he approaches the whole doctrine of election, we see it has fueled his compassion and his zeal for the gospel. Not the other way around. One of the things that we see, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, is that great emotion for his fellow Jewish people. And I don't think emotion is wrong to consider. Some think that if we simply talk about our emotion and zeal for the gospel, we're we're bringing an improper moral character to it. But I don't believe that is the case. Paul has great emotion for his fellow Israelites and you grab his heart you can see his heart for the lost especially those who are close and dear to his soul when he speaks of in in verse 3 about my brethren my countrymen my fellow Israelites according to the flesh We, we have to consider family was a big thing to an Israelite, perhaps bigger than it is in our day. Uh, you know, when, when we think about uh, family life in Canada, how many of his own 
of His own relatives were walking in deadness and unbelief against Christ. And, and, and Paul's heart is, is, is yearning. He stresses how he feels. In verse 2, I have great sorrow, continual grief in my heart. The burden that he has for those of his own countrymen and brothers who are lost. And it shows us that even as he unfolds the doctrines of election, that that doesn't make him stale and apathetic. It spurs him on. My friends, if such emotions are lost from us concerning loved ones who are dead in their sins, who are lost to the kingdom of God, simply because you have concluded in your mind they're not of the elect, I dare to say that it isn't the doctrine of election that you are believing. (laughs) Because that ought to make you even more zealous for their souls. And you see that with Paul here. As he says there in verse 1, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. That Christ in my own heart has moved me with such compassion and zeal for those who are not believing. I am not lying. Why would, like, why would Paul say these things as he introduces us to the doctrines of election? Because he's not saying his emotions are exaggerated or pretense because he's elect and the others aren't. He's stressing this, that there's, there's nothing false about my emotional concern for my brothers. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God was weighing upon His conscience and spurring Him on with deep gospel concern for the lost who were of His own country. And I dare to say, oh, that we were so moved. I mean, it's easy for us. I, I confess, it's easy to look at Canada and simply say, it's a nation that has forsaken God and we deserve the judgment that is upon us. Lord, let it come. <laughs> that's not a gospel heart. And that's not a soul that is understanding that God's elect are out there. And what is it that those unbelieving elect who are out there, what is it that they need more than anything? (laughs) They need the Gospel. It needs to be preached to them for them to believe. And, And I think one of the reasons to consider Paul's emotions here as we consider the doctrines of election is the focus of these emotions Because all too often, and I have been part of this in my past, all too often the doctrines of election have become nothing more than intellectual debates within the church. They they have become doctrines that that Arminians and Calvinists, to use that, that unbiblical word, that they have used to debate the issues of salvation. What a, what a wrong use 
of this doctrine. That does nothing to stir in our hearts the state of the lost and our compassion and zeal for their salvation. It's also not being presented here for us to be skeptical about someone's salvation if they don't believe in election. No, they're wrong. You know, there are many Christians who just can't grasp these deep and high doctrines. It doesn't mean they're they're not believers. <laughs> it's, it's showing to us the zeal that we are to have, which is the zeal of Christ, to bring the good news to all who cross our path, knowing that God will bring forth the increase of His saving mercies upon those that He has given to His Son in His timing and in His ways. And for that, we really need to step back. And I think all of us step back and, and just check the reality of our love for those loved ones of ours who have turned away from God. Is it there? Again, it is easy for us in all of the efforts and all of, of, of the words and talks and witnessing that we have done, especially to our loved ones. It is easy to look and simply to say to them after all of our labors and they haven't responded yet, well, I guess they're just not going to believe. Their heart is too hard for the Lord to turn And so we just chalk it up that they're not elect. That's easy to do. And then we abandon the witness of the gospel to them. And, And again, I say, that is a wrong use of this high and holy doctrine. Rather knowing who they are, especially as our loved ones, especially if they're covenant children, knowing that they have the sign of God upon them, even as Paul's fellow Israelites did in the Old Testament sense, that he did not look and say, because so many have believed that it's not worth bringing them the gospel. No, he continually in every single city city, went to them first because of God's covenant promises. Understand that there is a great emotion, a zeal, a compassion that is to be residing in our hearts for those who are lost and dead. And and secondly, even understanding that that compassion and zeal is to be for those who had great privileges that have been squandered. And you see that in verses 4 and 5. The great privileges that Israel had. And Paul here lists seven privileges that God had, had extended to all of Israel. And, and here again, I want to challenge our hearts because it is easy for us to become apathetic, even compassionless, 
lacking compassion towards those who ought to know better. To those who have wasted the benefits of God's grace. Or even to those who in turning away from God have even hurt us on the way. It's it's easy to cast them off. But that's, that's a wrong attitude of our hearts. You look at the great privileges that Israel squandered. Look what he says there, the very first thing. They were adopted by God as a people. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and God God just speaks so plainly to Israel. He says, Know that you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Why did God do that? (laughs) You know, it's some of the most humbling words, but they apply to us as well. I did not set my love upon you. I'm interchanging this as though God were speaking. I did not set my love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. You were the least of all peoples. But because I wanted to love you and for no other reason. Doesn't that amaze you? And you look at yourself, you look at your household, you look at at God coming and adopting and, and, and the wonder and the amazement that God has said, I set my love upon you. You are holy to me. Isn't that amazing? And and Israel cast that off. Not only that. Secondly, God's glory. They saw it. They saw the very presence of their God and their Savior in that cloud that followed them through the desert. As the Spirit came upon the tabernacle, as God Almighty in thundering and lightning descended upon Mount Sinai and spoke with such thunderous words the law of God, they saw the glory of God, something we haven't experienced. They saw the power of God. And the covenant, the covenant, Genesis 17, God saying to Abraham, and they owned those words. You hear the Pharisees echoing that. They they knew the covenant God had made with Abraham. And in John 8, even the Pharisees looked to Jesus and said, we are uh, children of Abraham. What do we have to worry about? Do you remember that covenant God said to Abraham? I will be God to you and your children. You know, it's one of when when that opened up to me, it was one of the most amazing things. Because up to that point, I always looked at my salvation as simply an individualistic thing. God saved me. Isn't that wonderful? 
But His Word said, says that it is so that you, as your household becomes established, I will be God to you and to your children. <laughs> that you young people who are getting to that age and thinking about marriage and having a family of your own or even having a household of your own, even if it's a household of one at this time, you you have before you that very promise of God, a covenant. I'll be God to you and to your children. Your children will be holy to me. Isn't that amazing? Who deserves that? Even without knowing what kind of children they're going to be. That's the promise laid down. <laughs> and the law. I will show you how to live for my glory. And they received the law written by the very finger of God and given to them in the grace of redeeming love. These are the privileges Israel had that they squandered. They had the service, the service of the temple. They had a means and a place whereby they could worship and serve God in the beauty of atoning sacrifices and in the holiness of their God. They had the promises Paul says there, the great testimonies of the prophets who continued to speak to them of God's unfailing mercies that were theirs through the coming Messiah. And you read those letters of the prophets. I know some of you, if you've read through the Bible in a year, it is taxing, isn't it, to get through Jeremiah. (laughs) I find that's one of the hardest prophets to get through. But when you read those prophets, what do you read? You read of God looking upon a covenant people who have turned away from Him, who have chased after the idols of the world, who have scorned His love. And He's sending prophet after prophet after year after year after century after century saying, Repent. Turn to me. I'll forgive all your sins. I am a God who will pardon all of your iniquities. I have, to coin the phrase that I mentioned earlier, I have more mercy in me than sin is in you. Try me. And prophet after prophet was put to death, scorned, treated with contempt. They had these privileges. And to top it off, as he says there, the end of verse 5, and they even had Christ who came according to the flesh. The living and true God who took to Himself our image. And He walked among them. God in human flesh dwelling in their midst, performing miracle after miracle, bringing forth the wisdom of God's Word, teaching them the testimony of God's saving love and the One who was offered up in their place, who died who died the cursed death, who rose again to seal their justification, to seal their redemption and salvation. They had all that testimony of Christ. They had over 500 witnesses who saw the resurrected Lord and could say, 
Yes, this man who died and was buried has risen from the dead. He is God Himself. Even the very chief priests we read in Matthew's Gospel heard the testimony of the soldiers and instead of them falling to their knees and saying, this this has to be God, they plotted a way to discredit Christ. They squandered their great privileges. They met Christ with unbelief. That's what John writes in John 1.11. He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. How could they? It, it, it all comes back to the state of the heart of fallen man. Even Israel, their heart before God was filled with so much pride and so much presumption and so much self-glorifying love that when God came to him, came to them, they met him with unbelief. And Paul mourns this. He doesn't stand back and think, I am better than that. Do we think that sometimes? Do we think we are any better when it comes to God's electing graces? Do any of us think that we are something apart from God's amazing grace? Do any of us think that if we had been there during the Exodus and saw all those plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, that we would have been the last one to turn away from God on the other side of that sea? Do any of us think that if we had been there in the time of Christ and watching all of His miracles, that we would have been any different than the vast multitudes that came to Him and said, okay, what are you going to do for me today? Do we think that? And when you consider again your family, your loved ones, your covenant children who have spurned God have turned away, even spurned your love. What is your response to their stay? What do you wish for them? You see, this is the challenge of understanding election. Do you pray for them? How do you pray for them? Do you magnify God's grace in your own soul as Paul did when he said to the Corinthians, when I think of what I was like without Christ, I am amazed that God would even love me. And there but for the grace of God do I go. Does that grace of God get magnified in your heart? You who are settled in your life in Christ? Do you become complacent and even apathetic toward people? You see, when Paul contemplates these things, what it moves him to is what we read in verse 3. He has a great concern for these unbelievers. Even though they've squandered so much the privileges that have been given to them. You read in verse 3, this great concern he has for these unbelievers. I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. 
God that would be, you would save them instead of me. (laughs) And as hard as it is for us to think that way, my friends, that is a Christ-like response. I always... I always bring this to our thoughts because it's one of the amazing things when you read Matthew 23 and you read woe after woe after woe that Christ pronounces on the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites and and you just stand back and so many people think, well, this is one of those moments when the anger and wrath of Christ came out as He pronounced those woes. But I say, no. Because you get to the end of chapter 23, Matthew's Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, and you hear the mourning, the great sorrow, the grief and anguish of His heart. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That's not wrath. And in fact, Christ owned those very words of Paul, I could wish that I myself were accursed (laughs) for my people. Because that's what He became for us. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, that Christ became a curse for us. On the tree. He took our place in judgment in order to bring salvation. Moses had the same, same perspective. Remember when Israel worshipped that uh, golden calf and God's judgment was ready to be poured out on them in a moment. And he said to to, to God, Moses, praying on behalf of the people. Exodus 32. He says, These people have committed a great sin. But if you will not forgive their sin, then blot out my name from your book which you have written. <laughs> Punish me instead, O oh God. Isn't that, isn't that something? And, and Paul speaks that same gospel compassion. Here's the connection to Jonah. Isn't that what Jonah lacked <laughs> with Nineveh? How dare God deliver a city that is against His people instead of delivering His people? <laughs> you see... Even before Paul steps into discussing election, what he's giving here is the right attitude that we are to carry ourselves with as we embrace a high and holy doctrine. And that is having a right concern for unbelievers. And and a right concern needs to be addressed. I've seen wrong concerns. I have seen Christians who wish loved ones into heaven who have died. And even would say to their children, when their children ask, where is so and so? And they would say, well, they're in heaven now. 
When you know in your heart that this person died without any hope and faith in Christ, this person who lived all of their life without regard to God and in death had no faith expressed. And suddenly we wish them in heaven. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't. And it's there that as parents at times we have to bear those hard truths to our children that they will understand as we heard from Psalm 11 in our, in our call to worship that God hates the wicked who spurn Him and that there is a judgment of fire and brimstone awaiting all who die without hope and faith in Christ Jesus. That's the reality We're not being compassionate, wishing people into heaven and deceiving our children with with a false gospel hope. We are telling the truth and speaking that truth in love for their soul's sake. That this isn't a cheap, easy ride that we get into heaven. It costs Christ. And neither, neither do we want to bear a false burden for the lost. Because there is a a real understanding that we're not responsible for souls who end up in hell. They are responsible. Their rejection of Christ, their rebellion against God, it, it, it is what has earned the wrath of God upon them. And we cannot allow our faith in God to be shattered when a loved one dies without faith in Christ. That is God's judgment. And it is real. It is not because God has failed as we're going to hear. It is not because His promises have failed. It is because of their unbelief. That they have failed to own Christ as Lord and Savior. And if I could speak to all of you at this time, you need to understand that great severity of God's judgment that awaits all who die without Christ. That is why the call of the Gospel comes and says, repent and believe and you will be saved. (laughs) Come to Christ. No. Even as we study these doctrines, we are to have a true gospel compassion. Edward Donnelly, in that book that I gave to most of you uh, over Christmas, he wrote in that book, he said this, If we are not deeply concerned for the unconverted, there is something seriously wrong with us. We should be moved for the lost and passionately committed to the spreading of the gospel. We must tell them of Christ. We must pray for them. And we must never lose zeal for the glory of God's gospel. And most of all, I add to that, we must believe this gospel ourselves. We have laid hold of Christ. It cannot help but show in our lives 
a real earnestness for those who are lost. Understand these things. Let your heart, let your heart be moved for those who are without Christ. Not just to earnest prayer, but to that witness, that testimony of the gospel. Because it is, as God has said, it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Do you believe? Own Christ, come to Him, I pray.